When you visit a state as big and diverse as Texas, there are a million different trips you can take. Let's say you've got an appetite for whitewater kayaking. You can get your own. So this is why they call it Devil's River. Trip to Texas. Or maybe you have an actual appetite. I'll take a pound of brisket, six ribs, uh, three links of sausage, and a, a piece of pecan pie. Trip to Texas. Go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. What makes the Carnival Cruise fun? That's up to you. Maybe it's a ride on boat, a roller coaster at sea, or a deep tissue massage at the spa. Creole-inspired cuisine at Emerald's Bistro to laid-back bites at Guy's Burger Joint. Excursions that take you from jungle adventures to beach days at Mahogany Bay and sunsets from the top deck. Long story short, no one does fun like Carnival. Carnival, choose fun. Ships Registry, Bahamas, Panama. The Bowery Boys episode 278, Newark versus LaGuardia, a tale of two airports. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And today's show is dedicated to those who are traveling this holiday season as we look at the story of American commercial aviation from the perspective of the area's two oldest major airports, LaGuardia Airport and Newark Liberty International. I think it's safe to say, Greg, that this is a story that has been at times rather turbulent prepare for a host of airline related puns in this show that we will we will not overdo it but today's show will be filled actually with daredevils and with high stakes contests and cheering spectators and with airport intrigue now many people when they're traveling especially domestically may often think Newark versus LaGuardia which is better which is which worse, is worse. <laughs> <laughs> Well in this show we're going to we're essentially going to give you the origins of the best and worst sides of both of those airports but that title's also a little bit of a play of Newark Airport versus the mayor Fiorella LaGuardia who in 1934 pulls an outrageous stunt that affects the skies of New York City forever And we'll really be focusing in today's show on about a 20 or 25-year period Mm -hmm. where the show takes place mostly in the 1920s and 1930s, uh, which saw the opening of both of these airports and really gave way to the subsequent need for a third airport. So, listener, fasten your seatbelts, put your tray tables up, (laughs) and prepare as we start our descent into Newark and LaGuardia and the dramatic tale of two airports. So before we begin, mm-hmm. we'll be centering our conversation around the origins of Newark Liberty International Airport. Today's name. Yes, which is located in Newark, New Jersey, and LaGuardia Airport, which is located in the borough of Queens on Flushing Bay. But in order to get to those two airports, we actually have to dial back to flights arriving for the very first time in New York mm-hmm. City. And and actually, flights taking off, if you will, for the very first time uh, 
anywhere. Because of, like 110 years ago, there were no airplanes of any kind. 115 in... years ago, oh, okay. in fact. It was in 1903, on December 17th of 1903. So almost exactly 115 years ago. At 10.35 in the morning, when Orville Wright succeeded in flying a, quote, heavier-than-air flyer in an area near Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Now, he and his brother, Orville, from Dayton, Ohio, they had been working for years in North Carolina on this problem of how to design the perfect glider and how to attach a propeller system to it. Mm -hmm. We're not going to dive into that whole story. (laughs) But we've seen pictures of this famous first airplane. It's been on postage stamps. I've seen pictures of this extraordinary plane. I was obsessed with this story as a kid. How how long, how, what was the distance of this actual first flight, though? Well, that first flight only lasted for 12 seconds, and it flew 120 feet. Um, but they did fly four flights that day. They kind of took turns, as good brothers would. Um, and within two years, in 1905, they succeeded in flying for 39 minutes, 24 miles in total. They flew in circles. Mm-hmm. But that was outside of New York. When did flight first arrive into the city? Well, the first flight over New York was on September 29th, 1909, by Wilbur Wright. Um, He had been hired, actually, to fly to participate in the Hudson-Fulton celebration, which was this sort of magnificent statewide celebration of all (laughs) things nautical. I mean, celebrating both Henry Hudson and Robert Fulton. It was a big party just to essentially pat the New Yorkers on the back for all of these marvelous inventions. So uh, Wilbur Wright brought his new invention to the party. Yes, he was hired to fly for at least 10 miles or for at least one hour. So on the morning of September 29th, he headed with his aircraft out to Governor's Island. That would be where he would take off from. Although he was frightened uh, when he looked around and saw, of course, New York Harbor and all the water. And so he ingeniously attached a red canoe to the bottom of his airplane. Just in case he touched down on the water. Right. And he needed to sail away in his airplane. I mean, were there paddles? There must have been. Uh, I I don't know that he needed paddles. I mean, I think that people would have noticed had he touched down into the water. Well, anyway, he took off at 9.15 for his first flight in New York, flew over Governor's Island, and then landed back in place. He then took off about an hour later, 10.17, headed toward the Statue of Liberty, shocking everybody, of course, who was watching on Lower Manhattan. And then they watched as he swooped around the statue and headed back to Governor's Island, landing at 10.22 in the morning. So that first major Mm. flight over the New York water was about five minutes long. But this was even just a test flight, wasn't it? This wasn't even the main flight, the the star of the show flight that he was planning on doing from Governor's Island, right? That's right. That was the the city's first airstrip here. And he would take off from there on October 4th and fly for 33 minutes, a distance of 20 miles total, over Manhattan and then up the Hudson River to Grant's tomb, around it and back down with people uh, cheering him all the way. So this is the this is the first time that New Yorkers saw an airplane in the sky, which is pretty amazing. But right. in New York State, there had already been a few daredevils testing out experimental planes. Yes, especially one daredevil uh, from the Finger Lakes in upstate New York who would land another milestone, if you will, in New York aviation history. His name was Glenn Curtis, and he was actually a cutthroat competitor to the Wright brothers. 
A year before that, in 1908, Curtis started flying aircraft in the winter by using one of the frozen Finger Lakes as his runway. And then he made he made history by flying even longer distances. Uh, the next year, in 1909, he relocated to Long Island, where he broke a record by flying for 25 kilometers. Now, why were these men risking their lives uh, doing this sort of thing? I mean, they, what was the motivation? Well, money, of course, mm-hmm. um, and the honor of being the first, you know, to achieve certain speeds or certain distances. Mm-hmm. Many of these were, many of these men were taking part in competitions that were being held. They were used to sell tickets to racetracks, sell newspapers, even sell tickets on trains that would follow these flights. On May 29, nineteen ten. Curtis flew his Albany Flyer uh, between Albany and New York in what was actually considered to be the very first long-distance flight of 137 miles. And he won for that competition a $10,000 prize offered by publisher Joseph Pulitzer. So like the first game show of the skies. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we'd be so into it. But where did he land? Was it over here also on Governor's Island in New York Harbor? Well, he was headed for Governor's Island, but but he didn't have enough fuel, and he was allowed a couple touchdowns along the way to refuel. Mm-hmm. So he actually landed in Inwood on the property owned by the family of the financier, William Isham. They were just at home taking it easy, you know, <laughs> when all of a sudden an airplane landed in their yard. He needed fuel. They gave it to him. Uh, He was technically at that point inside the city limits, so he had already won the competition. Mm -hmm. uh, But he really wanted to make it to Governor's Island. So he kept going, called the newspapers before he reboarded to tell them he was still on his way. Sure. And then he took off again for his final destination. But another place he could have landed would have been back out where he was based, out in Long Island, in Hempstead Plains in Nassau County, not very far from the New York City border. This was a large, flat field that was being used increasingly by these daredevils and to hold events. Hmm. It was a prairie, and it was it was perfect for flying. And it was from this field that Curtis would actually start teaching others how to fly. And is probably the most famous early airfield of these days of the of the tens and of the teens and twenties. Right, like the Governor's Island one was a little more temporary, mm-hmm. but this one really took hold. Mm-hmm. I love how. How aviation history here so far is basically being fueled by daredevils, by stuntmen. They're like superheroes. Right, because nobody else, you and I, could not have done this at the time. No, so we were no. just like in awe of this man who was up in this machine. <laughs> uh-huh. In October of 1910, the second international aviation meet was held out in the Belmont racetrack near Hempstead Plains. This was a huge deal and actually attracted some of the people we've just talked about. It, it attracted the Wright brothers and other American and French and British pilots and drew thousands of spectators. There had been other events that year in L.A. and then in Boston. But this was notable because about two dozen of the world's best pilots participated here in Long Island. And it didn't hurt that they were offering $75,000 in cash prizes. <laughs> wow. The big event was held on October 30th, which was a race uh, from the track over New York Harbor and to the Statue of Liberty, circling it and then heading back. Maybe a million New Yorkers witnessed yeah. some part of this event um, and tens of thousands packed into the racetrack uh, to watch them take off and land. Imagine if you're taking a ferry from Staten Island and you look overhead and you're just on your way to work or whatever and you're looking overhead and there's all of these flying devices. Right. That's Racing incredible. Each yeah. other. <laughs> well, the winner was an American pilot named John Moissant 
who made that trip in 34 minutes and 38 seconds. He was beloved by the crowds for one thing because he flew with his trusted co-pilot, his cat named Mademoiselle (laughs) Fifi. But I guess long story short here, this event or these uh, these competitions Mm -hmm. would establish Hempstead Plains as the place for aircraft. Right. The Hempstead Plains Aerodrome Mm -hmm. as the premier area. Uh, airport, uh, we would say today. Moisen's brother, Alfred, uh, would create a school there and teach others to fly. One of his students, Harriet Quimby, would be the first woman uh, to be a licensed pilot in the United States in 1911. But I imagine the fun and games here uh, would change drastically once we get to World War One. Right. The, the war would change aviation history, of course. Leading it to new technical advancements, which would eventually make commercial aviation possible and and train thousands of new pilots who, once the war was over, would be able to work in commercial aviation. Uh, Hempstead Plains itself was used for military training purposes during the war. And one of the service members who was trained here was actually President Teddy Roosevelt's son, Quentin. Having been trained here, he headed to France, where in 1918, Quentin died in aerial combat. And the next year, the field was renamed in his honor, Roosevelt Field. So it's named for the former president, Theodore Roosevelt's son. Quentin, Mm -hmm. who is, by the way, the only son of a U.S. president to ever die in combat. And so after the war here, Roosevelt Field would be the central airstrip pretty much for the Northeast. Yeah, and the important things would happen here, including Charles Lindbergh, who would take off from here in his Spirit of St. Louis airplane in 1927, bound for Paris in a 33-hour flight that goes down in history as the first nonstop flight to mainland Europe and also the first solo flight from the U.S. to Europe. And this is one of the most storied events in the 1920s, but I just want to just put this out there because I'm setting this up. This is not within the border of New York City. It's just... But it's close. It's very close. But that's true. New York City at this point doesn't really have an airfield to compete with this. Roosevelt Field would remain a a busy civilian airport during the 1930s. It would be then used again for military purposes during World War II um, and continue to operate until 1951 when much of it was sold off and redeveloped into a shopping mall, which was designed by I.M. Pei and opened in 1956. And it's still open today. Oh, yeah. I've I've bought some sneakers there. Were you aware of where you were buying those <laughs> yeah, sneakers? Yeah, I did. I went there specifically for that reason. Of course. It had did. a historic it was a historical mall. But back to the 1920s, we need to underscore that the kind of flying that was happening was largely by daredevils or by those in military training. Right. The birth of commercial flight, meaning like you and I could buy a ticket and be a passenger on a plane to get somewhere, that kind of flight. The birth of that actually begins with the mail. More specifically, with an act of Congress, with the Airmail Act of 1925, which gave the U.S. Post Office permission to contract with private companies to deliver mail between destinations. 
now this needed a special act because you know the the, the post office is a is a part of the government, and so what this essentially gave them permission to do was to interact with parties that were not part of the government to deliver your private mail. So to contract it out. Yes, and so this this act fueled the creation of new airlines, these private airlines, to compete, and were eventually awarded with these post office mail contracts. These young, budding airlines grew rapidly within just a couple years and, of course, then were ideally placed to then expand their plans beyond the mail to passengers, to human mail. (laughs) Um, To to, males and females. Yes, to passengers. And I get the contracting out of delivering mail. That seems sort of like low risk. Sure, But it seems like an entirely different business once you bring on living passengers Were there any kinds of regulations in place? Well, the following year came another, in fact, even more important act of Congress. And on May 26, 1926, the Air Commerce Act. Reading, Tom, directly from the FAA website here, because I wanted to get it right. This landmark legislation charged the Secretary of Commerce with fostering air commerce, issuing and enforcing air traffic rules, licensing pilots, certifying aircraft, establishing airways, and operating and maintaining aids to air navigation. That is a vast mandate. <laughs> yeah. So they're, they're basically so they're essentially establishing the entire air network that we still use today. Yeah, I mean it's a lot of power, really, that they've just sort of created these highways of the sky. I mean, they're obviously taking advice from military and private pilots, but they have created this infrastructure that we still live in today. And what year is that? 1926. From the New York Times that summer, quote, as soon as arrangements can be made, passengers as well as mail and freight will be carried by private companies under contract with the government. Secretary Hoover, fresh from consultation with the president, Calvin Coolidge, predicts that in three years, the United States will have the most complete air service in the world. Uh, By the way, that's Herbert Hoover, who was the secretary of commerce before becoming the president. Okay, so that sets up the airlines. um, And now we have government regulation to sort of like set up the whole system um, of airways. Uh Uh-huh. Now we just need airports for them to take off and land in. Right, because we even have the pilots and, and some degree of airplanes. Right, because because of World War I, we have all these men who are trained to run these devices. Uh-huh. So New York City does not have a great system of, there's like minor, like, so like small airstrips here or there, but their biggest airport is the aforementioned Roosevelt Field. Which wasn't even in New York City. Right. Yeah, it was in Garden City, technically. Right. Nobody was going to buy a ticket from Garden City to, to, <laughs> to Chicago. New York was at a serious disadvantage here. And the U.S. government knew this. You know, New York needed to like seriously upgrade. And so in 1927, Hoover, who was still Secretary of Commerce, created a government committee to look into developing airports for the New York City area. Wait, the federal government was determining where this airport should be? Yeah, because they had the authorization under this, like, sweeping Air Commerce Act. So they were stepping in to assist New York in identifying a place. In fact, they came up with a a, a list of several possible places for growth for new airports all through the New York City region. 
including a couple in New Jersey, a few places in Queens, and then just to play an interesting game of what if, here's a couple more that were sort of like identified as possible sites for airports, including the Bronx by East Chester Creek. That site, by the way, it would not be developed because of the Great Depression. And by the way, the Great Depression hangs upon everything Mm. that we're going to be talking about going forward. But the site just a few decades later would be developed into the amusement park Freedomland USA. Oh, right. You have a whole (laughs) podcast about Freedomland. It's an old show, an oldie but goodie, but Freedomland USA, and of course that, a few years later from that, is Co-op City. So that would have been an airport. But then even more incredibly, back in the late 20s, they still thought that perhaps you could develop airstrips atop buildings. There were even some early plans to build an airstrip on a five-story building on the border between Carroll Gardens and Red Hook <laughs> at Columbia Street and Hamilton Avenue, wow. they were going to put um, an airport on top of a building. The, the, they quickly realized that that was the, it that seems was, kind uh, of was limiting. Yes. <laughs> now, meanwhile, while New York is you know agonizing over over this, over in New Jersey, there was a thriving city with a g- growing population, and that was Newark. New Jersey. Between 1900 and 1920, the population of Newark doubled so that in the 1920s, it had a half a million people that lived there. It was the 18th largest city in the country. Just in comparison today, it's the 70th largest city. Now, Newark has had a lot of problems in the 20th century, but none of those made an appearance in the 1920s. It was a hot developing city, and a city that's growing so rapidly that they developed their own airport. Yeah, of course they needed one of a city that size. So on October 1st, 1928, Newark Municipal Airport opened upon 68 acres of marshland near Newark Bay. And it was cr- created using two and a half million cubic yards of wet and dry landfill during its construction. Because it, you said it was developed on a bay. It was on the bay, Yes. New York City was still scrambling around when the following year, 1929, in February, the U.S. government declares Newark, New Jersey, the official air mail port of the New York City region. Ooh, that sounds like a diss. Why would they, why <laughs> yeah. would they choose Newark for well, that mail route? Well, it was simply the airport that could handle the most traffic at that time in history because it was a brand new airport. Newark was doing fine. And all and New York City wasn't quite getting its act together, these various other locations. So Newark then, because of this, gets a huge upgrade. And so over the next few years, three new administration buildings with great Art Deco murals um, by Arshal Gorky were constructed and were dedicated in 1935 by no less than Amelia Earhart. Wow. But to be clear here, by the early 1930s, Newark Airport is handling Mostly mail, plus somewhat limited passenger service. Right, because there's not a lot of passenger service at this time. But in the New York region, this is where you would go to catch those planes. So New York would not be outdone here. You can imagine how miffed New Yorkers were by this. (laughs) They began rolling out plans even even before Newark was developed for a, a... for an airport to be developed on a tiny island in Jamaica Bay called Barren Island. Now, actually, a pilot had actually built a small airfield here already in 1927, but the city identified this as a place to develop like a full-scale competitor to, mm. to Newark. Another bay. 
another uh, yeah another bay and in, in in Jamaica Bay. This did not remain an island that for that long. They actually filled it in with landfill so that it would connect to the mainland. It was eventually dedicated on June 26, 1930, as Floyd Bennett Field, named for a famed aviator of the day who had reportedly flown to the North Pole back in 1926. After several more delays, it was finally opened for air traffic in spring of 1933. So in 1933, Floyd Bennett Field is open in South Brooklyn on Jamaica Bay, giving New York finally an airport that competes for passenger travel with Newark. Right. It even outpaced Newark overall in the number of arrivals and departures for general aviation. By that, you mean by private by yeah. private planes? Yeah, there's still mostly private planes happening. And so, like, Floyd Bennett's getting a lot of that, but they could never really compete realistically with Newark as long as Newark had those airmail rights. And ironically, and this is incredible, like they wanted an airport in New York City so that people could in New York City could get to it. Right. But ironically, many New Yorkers found that it was too far away and that it was actually easier if you lived in Manhattan to get to Newark. Was that actually true? It was easier to get to Newark? Uh, yeah, because in 1927, the Holland Tunnel opened, and so all of the highways and bridges on the New Jersey side that came with that made it much easier to get out there. You also had the George Washington Bridge in 1931, which made it easier to get to uh, New Jersey if you lived in Upper Manhattan. Meanwhile, the portions of the Belt Parkway, which you would use to get to Floyd Bennett Field today, they would not even be open until 1940. So even with an airport open now— it must have frustrated the city that people didn't want to go there. And you know who it frustrated the most is, of course, the man who would become the mayor of New York in 1934, Fiorello LaGuardia. Now, LaGuardia had been a congressman in New York for a decade and was actually very focused on aviation, like saw its promise very early on. Found it absurd that New York could not get its act together here. And actually, since the 1920s, he had been pushing for New York to develop its own airport out back out on Governor's Island, where the whole story started in the first place. Because right, right. he looked and he saw that polo ground that the army had out there, and he thought that it would make a perfect landing strip. He even introduced a bill in Congress in 1928 to make Governor's Island an airport. This does make sense in a way because Governor's Island is clearly so close to lower Manhattan. I mean, if he had actually managed to get them to approve this, they probably would have gotten that airmail contract. And we would have had very different skies today in New York City, needless to say. Right. Although there's also the question of how we would have accessed that, <laughs> that airport out in Governor's Island. They floated the idea, if you will, a ferry service that would go from the battery out to the island. There was even an ambitious oh. plan to fill in uh, the New York Harbor, the, the water between the battery and, and the island, so that you could just walk to the airport. <laughs> Basically, making, you know, Governor's Island no longer an island. Well, that's great. I guess uh, we wouldn't have needed those br pesky bridges in the East River if we're just going to fill in things, right? <laughs> well, and in the case of Governor's Island, by the 1930s, of course, they were planning the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. Mm -hmm. So he hatched the idea of kind of creating an exit in the tunnel oh. Oh, to go directly okay. to the island. But needless to say, this plan for an airport out on Governor's Island didn't go anywhere. Well, now as mayor in 
1934, he was going to to do something about this. You know, he was willing to make some power moves as someone who could could grab headlines, decided on a very, very outrageous headline-grabbing stunt. Now, there are lots of urban legends about this little story, but so I'm just going to read directly from the New York Times on November 25th, 1934. It was a front-page story. Quote, Newark, which is now making faces at the metropolis across the river because the larger city is taking traffic from its airport, was shunned by Mayor LaGuardia on his return from Chicago by airplane last night. Unlike other passengers, the mayor remained in the TWA plane on its arrival at Newark Municipal Airport. While several of the others went by automobile to Manhattan, the mayor had planned to travel in the plane to New York's Municipal Airport at Floyd Bennett Field. On alighting, the mayor confirmed reports that he had refused to be deposited in Newark. My ticket says New York, he said, and that's where they brought me. He exhibited the ticket to prove his point. A considerable argument arose at Newark Airport between the officials of the field and the mayor after the plane landed there at 6.50 p.m. To the mayor's insistence that he had paid to be flown to New York, the officials responded that the point had never been raised before. Mr. LaGuardia refused to leave the plane, even to be photographed, but invited newspaper cameramen into the plane in which he posed willingly. Finally, his technicality was conceded, and H.H. Gallup, field manager, took the controls from the pilot and flew Mr. LaGuardia to his destination. He landed in Brooklyn at 7.15 p.m. So So (laughs) the mayor was a smart aleck. Yes. He looked at his ticket and said, this says New York, not Newark. I'm not getting off in Newark. <laughs> Until I get to New York. <laughs> and so they flew him then to Floyd Bennett Field. Some might call that a sort of diva antics today, but this little stunt actually kicked off LaGuardia's request to build New York a brand new airport and one that would compete and tower over its rival over at Newark. We'll take off on that adventure after this. When you visit a state as big and diverse as Texas, there are a million different trips you can take. Let's say you've got an appetite for whitewater kayaking. You can get your own. So this is why they call it Devil's River. Trip to Texas. Or maybe you have an actual appetite. I'll take a pound of brisket, six ribs, uh, three links of sausage, and a a piece of pecan pie. Trip to Texas. Go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, 
the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus. Whatever job you need to do out there, grab the right tool to get it done. The new F-150 with an available hybrid engine and up to 7.2 kilowatts of pro power on board to power things on the go. It's not a tool you'll hang in a tool shed, but you can certainly use it to build one. The new 2024 Ford F-150. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024. Optional features the owner's manual for important operating instructions. Okay, so let's go back to Mayor LaGuardia throwing the sassy little publicity stuff. Um, <laughs> and effective, which, yes. Effective, right. Refusing to deplane at Newark. I dare any one of our listeners to try the same thing. <laughs> but now, for a few years, he sort of talked it over with, you know, different airlines, with different officials, tried to get somebody to do something about it. Finally, in 1937, American Airlines took him up on his challenge and decided to test out flights out of Floyd Bennett Field. So they they actually just started with one flight, their air shuttle to Boston. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, they just couldn't attract enough interest to this flight. Newark was still looming large and was still easier to get to. That's right. Floyd Bennett Field was actually, as you mentioned, farther from Midtown uh, than Newark, and it took longer to get there. Even though they started, you know, a water taxi service uh, from Lower Manhattan and from 34th Street out to Floyd Bennett Field, still not enough takers. The airfield would continue to be used for military uh, and for private purposes, but commercial flights would cease there in 1939. Can we just back up for a second? You mentioned American Airlines, a major player in the story. Right. Where did they? Uh, where did they come from? Were they one of these early airlines that sprouted up in the 20s? Well, they came from those early airlines. In fact, uh, in 1930, 82 of those smaller airlines, those regional carriers, came together and formed a company called American Airways. Initially, it was just a brand name that they could all use, uh, but it would then become a company, American Airways. So to compare it in a way, I guess, to like one of these railroad, 19th century railroads, mm -hmm. all these little railroad lines conglomerating together, consolidating consolidation, together. Consolidation, mm -hmm. yes. And, and because of that consolidation, they could now reach 72 cities. But again, like m most of the airlines, they were still making most of their money early on through the mail service. In 1934, American Airways was bought and renamed American Airlines. Uh, and soon, they were actually able to turn a profit by focusing on flying passengers, hmm. not mail. So that's in 1934 because commercial aviation technology is changing. There are advancements in passenger comfort. And that, 1934, is the same year that Mayor LaGuardia pulls off that stunt, just <laughs> yeah. to put it back uh -huh. in, in, in context here. So LaGuardia and American Airlines mm -hmm. had, had made an arrangement to have American fly out of Floyd Bennett Field, but this did not work. It, it, was, not, um, it was not a profitable enterprise. Right. So that left Mayor LaGuardia and people from American Airways Airlines looking, you know, for a new 
hopefully wide open space that was better located than Newark to Midtown. And they were drawn to the northern Queens waterfront area, to a spot that separated the Bowery Bay and Flushing Bay, uh, an area called North Beach. And this is across the water from Rikers Island. That's correct, which at the time was a garbage dump. However, it was an area that was conveniently located near some more appealing landmarks, like the new Triborough Bridge, uh, which had just opened, and very near the site of what was going to be the upcoming World's Fair, which would open in 1939. And it would actually soon be accessible as well to Midtown via the new Queen's Midtown Tunnel, which was under construction at that time and set to open in 1940. And obviously, to connect all of those things, the Triborough Bridge, the the tunnel, the, the World's Fair... They were all being connected by new highways that were being constructed as well. So this was an ideal location for a new airport. I just remember in my research, there there was already an airport here, like a smaller airport. Yeah, a small private airport had opened here in 1929. That had opened on the site of a former amusement park called the Gala Amusement Park. Which brings now to a count of two times that we've mentioned different amusement parks <laughs> and airports. Show. Well, you know, they're large swaths of land. Right. And, and in the 20s, you know, the Gale Amusement Park had been owned by the Steinway family. Whose factories were just next door. Right. In the Steinway section of Queens. Mm-hmm. Well, in 1929, that amusement park was demolished and that area, along with more land next to it, was replaced by the Glen Curtis Airport named after the famed pilot that we spoke about earlier. The Curtis Airport was pretty small and modest, 105 acres large, uh, with three gravel runways and three hangars. And in 1935, it would be renamed the North Beach Airport. But still, in 1935, it wasn't open to commercial air traffic. So when LaGuardia is looking around, this doesn't really qualify as a space that could handle commercial airlines. And it certainly wouldn't have been large enough for American Airlines or to be in any way competitive with what was happening out in Newark. No, but at least it was a start because, you know, a visionary like LaGuardia and his engineers could look at that land and the bays around it and see that with millions of cubic yards of landfill and, you know, some assistance from the Works Progress Administration, who would actually fork over something like $45 million— The city planners, they figured that they could build out into the water and create new space, as they had in In Newark. Newark, yeah. So in 1937, the city bought that airport for $1.3 million. And then about 20,000 WPA workers worked relentlessly over two years on this massive construction project, which included building a metal framework into the water— filling it with landfill from the Rikers Island dump and also from subway excavations, Hmm. they filled 357 acres of water. Imagine that. I mean, the the initial airport was 105 acres. (laughs) They created 357 more acres of space into the bays. So most of LaGuardia Airport is in the bay. On landfill, yes. Uh, They turned a 105-acre airport into a 558-acre airport. And I'm sure it was so promising that American Airlines signed on, right, to be the inaugural airline of the new airport. 
Yes, they were the first to officially sign on in 1938 while it was still under construction, um, officially leasing hangars and, and including space for its main office, which had been based out of Chicago. They were, in fact, rewarded by Mayor LaGuardia for their enthusiasm and their help in this. Um, and given extra space, uh, some of which, well, first they offered to him as a sort of mayor's office, which he was happy about. But then he was, you know, forced. That didn't look so hot. Mm-hmm. Um, it looked like a little bit of collusion. And we know where that'll get you. So they, he handed it back to them and they turned it into their first club for their premier flyers, which they called their Admirals Club, oh. thus making the very first airline club in the world. Now, so when did this airport open? Uh, Well, a dedication ceremony was held on October 15th, 1939, in which Mayor LaGuardia presided over the ceremonies in front of thousands of curious and, you know, proud New Yorkers gazing upon their new state-of-the-art airport, the the best-equipped airport in the world, which boasted six hangars, which served... multiple airlines, not just American. The airport had four runways. It had six restaurants. It had a a cocktail bar and a nightclub. (laughs) The whole thing was very expensive and was getting actually lambasted in the press for running over budget. So he was also looking for ways to make money for the airport, hoping, because the city was in charge of it, that it would be self-sustaining economically. So he was scheming for new ways to bring in money. So they rented out space to shops and restaurants and beauty salons and such. So to be clear, these are private business owners that are leased space into this airport, right? Right. The private companies, private business owners. Right. You know, he was taking a gamble that people on their way to their gate would actually want to stop and buy something to read or get their hair done. Mm Mm-hmm. The airport also boasted new features. Its main terminal building, in fact, which was designed, you know, in a gorgeous Art Deco style of the times, featured two levels, one for arrivals and one for departures, which was a new idea. You know, it was a new (laughs) concept uh for clearing up or for, for relieving congestion. And not just have all the passengers mingle into one space. Right. Crunching up against a a counter, a (laughs) check-in counter. Of course, at that October 15th dedication ceremony, there was a touch of drama as a female protester interrupted the mayor's speech by parading in front of him, holding up a giant placard that read, Newark is still the world's greatest airport. (laughs) What? So there was a there were like like Newark groupies that crashed the opening of LaGuardia Airport. You know, (laughs) she obviously felt very strongly about Newark Airport. (laughs) So did they actually get this open, though, in time for the World's Fair of 1939? (laughs) Unfortunately, no, because the airport officially opened to commercial air traffic on December 2nd, and the World's Fair had already opened back in April. Oh. So when the World's Fair opened in April, there was no real commercial airport nearby for for its attendees to use. Um, But on December 2nd, 1939, the New York Municipal Airport opened with a huge celebration when its first arrival touched down, a TWA flight from Chicago touching down just after midnight on December 2nd. From that day's New York Times, LaGuardia Field begins operations. 
gliding out of the cloud bank sky over the new $40 million municipal airport at North Beach, Queens. An airliner from Chicago landed on the rain-swept runway below at 12.01 a.m. today, officially opening LaGuardia Field as the eastern terminus of four of the major airlines of the nation. 3,000 persons, headed by Mayor LaGuardia, after whom the airport is named, greeted the incoming transport plane from the field's apron and from the observation deck of the Land Plane Administration building. With the crowd milling about him, the mayor met the plane after it had taxied up and welcomed the airline's passengers. The first of the passengers to alight was Miss Arlene Blackburn, a radio actress. <laughs> she handed the mayor a bouquet and expressed to him the gratitude of transcontinental and western air, TWA, and the three other lines that are using the field, the American, the United, and the Canadian Colonial. I am glad to welcome you to New York, the mayor said in reply. And you know, Greg, I bet he was <laughs> glad to welcome them to New York. Um, much later in the article, I just have to point out that they mentioned, besides Miss Blackburn, the first incoming plane carried Mrs. Clara Adams, a veteran first flight passenger and holder of the round-the-world record for scheduled air transport, and Omero Caton, who was the first to travel through the Holland and Lincoln Tunnels and over the Triborough Bridge. So this is just a niche of people who are just into being the first of everything back yes, in the day. It's okay. amazing. And a subsequent um, piece in the Times, we don't have time to get into now, is all about Omero Caton and his brother Michael Caton, who were considered, who called themselves Mr. First and Mr. Second, because they were the first and second to use all kinds of municipal services, such as the first to put a coin in a New York City parking meter, the first to buy a token on the 8th Avenue subway, the first to skate across the rink at Rockefeller Center. I mean, they deserve their own show. Well, I'm glad that they made their flight here. So, but you're we're calling it New York Municipal Airport? That's the name? Well, the official name when it opened was New York Municipal Airport dash LaGuardia Airfield. Mm. So they kind of called it both things. I love that there were just thousands of people here at LaGuardia here just to watch planes arrive. Oh, and LaGuardia himself would also introduce an admission charge for people, 10 cents, to climb up to the Skywalk observation deck where they could watch planes taking off and landing. Wow, could you imagine wanting to spend time at the airport? At LaGuardia? <laughs> I'd pay to stand in line at Au Bon Pen. Another building that would be added to the LaGuardia campus, if you will, was the Marine Air Terminal, which would open the next year in 1940 when Pan Am would start to uh, fly their Boeing Clippers. These were luxury flying boats, Greg. These were boats that, that handled international destinations. So you could get into one of these flying boats at LaGuardia, uh, which was docked out in the water in a pier. You'd take a pier out, climb mm -hmm. aboard one of these double-decker flying boats, and 22 hours later, you could arrive in Lisbon. And this would be the precursor to transatlantic jet travel. It's the, it's the closest thing to it at this particular time. That's right. So they built this marine air terminal, which is still standing today. Uh, it's the only original terminal that still exists. Um, it's an Art Deco masterpiece, a large round building, uh, and inside of it you'll find a gorgeous mural called Flight, 
uh, by James Brooks, which got shamefully painted over in the 1950s, but then restored about about 40 years ago. So LaGuardia is open 1939, and it's a huge success here. Yes. According to Joshua Stoff, uh, who wrote the book LaGuardia Airport, Images of Aviation, quote, Considered a very large airport at the time it was built, by the late 1940s, LaGuardia became the world's busiest airport and was clearly too small for the amount of air traffic it was beginning to handle. So it's outgrowing its base, and this is only reinforced by the fact that Newark had stopped its passenger service during World War II. Uh, Newark Airport was only being used by the military at that time. Oh, so all the passenger service in the area went to LaGuardia. Right, making it just the busiest domestic and international airport in the country. But there were a couple problems here because it was it was locked into place. There wasn't really any room for it to grow. And that's at the same time that aviation is developing as well. Aircraft is becoming heavier. In fact, a couple years after LaGuardia had opened already, some of the runways um, had started to sink into the into the landfill and they were flooding and cracking. LaGuardia was almost immediately becoming, surprise, surprise, outdated. (laughs) Within just a couple years. So the city was looking at this airport and and realizing that it was going to need some expensive modernization and redevelopment work, right? But they were obviously concerned about how much that would cost. So in 1947, Mayor O'Dwyer signed an agreement with the Port of New York Authority to hand over the running of the airport to what would to the entity that would become the Port Authority. The Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. Right. And that same year in 1947, former, at that point, Mayor LaGuardia died. And the airport, New York Municipal Airport, was officially then renamed for him LaGuardia Airport. Hmm. Now, just a note on this authority, Port Authority, now, a name that we haven't actually, believe it or not, mentioned in this show yet, Robert <laughs> Moses. You know, he was a, in love with this public authority's idea because it turned public utilities into money-making ventures. And then that money could be poured back into the system. So he had done a brilliant job with this over at the Triborough Bridge and Tunnel Authority. Now with Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, they could make money on these airports directly and not merely become profit makers for the airlines and these private companies. So these bars, these restaurants, newsstands, the Hudson books that you walk by, those stores that sell those neck pillows. Oh yeah. All of these, all of the development of these, and of course all the millions of advertisements you see in airports, all these trace back to this agreement with Port Authority. But it was an agreement with Newark, LaGuardia, and a brand new airport. For before he left office, he knew that LaGuardia could not take all of these flights, so there needed to be yet another airport. So in 1941, there was a a former golf course named Idlewild, and the surrounding marshlands was transformed into a new airport. Two years after LaGuardia opened. That's when they started development. And to be fair, there was actually a small sea airport there called Jamaica Sea Airport that had been, it was a, with a dirt runway. All of this was redeveloped. And so by 1948, it opened as New York International Airport. So by the 1950s, then the Port Authority is in charge of running Newark, LaGuardia, and the New York International Airport, which would then be called 
Idlewild. Yes, and they would continue calling it Idlewild uh, until a few weeks after the assassination of the 35th president of the United States in 1963. So 55 years ago this year, renamed it John F. Kennedy International Airport. Now, JFK has special innovations that were that placed it on a different league from these other airports, which involved the innovation of separate terminals for each airline. So that charm bracelet design style, which we have a show just on JFK Airport. We just described it as a charm bracelet, which was ideal for the jet age, which brought in larger planes and a revolution of commercial flight because now planes could could get go to more destinations, could hold more passengers and hold them more comfortably. So here we are in the 1950s and 60s, a kind of golden age of jet air travel. Uh-huh. The, the aircraft are, are larger. It's more comfortable. Ticket prices are coming down a little bit, making it more accessible uh, to everyday flyers. And JFK was the perfect spot with these new modern terminals. Yeah. So how in the world could those other two airports, Newark and LaGuardia, compete with this? Well, yeah, it would take a lot of time, energy, and money, and for many passengers, like, aggravation. You know, over in Newark, they only had one single terminal, and airstrips of inadequate length. In 1970, the New York Times called it, quote, the oldest and least used of the New York area's three jet ports. But also by now, I mean, Robert Moses had built all those highways. It was easier to get to even LaGuardia or JFK. Yeah, you didn't have the same problems in terms of transportation. You could, you know, get now get into an automobile and go to LaGuardia or JFK. In that same article um, from the New York Times, uh, quote, to most New Yorkers, Newark might as well be Buffalo. But through the 1970s, there were some major changes. New terminals were built here in Newark, taking advantage of Newark's relatively luxurious amount of space compared to these other two airports. Like, Newark did have the ability to expand. During this time, they would also become Newark International Airport when the first international flights left Newark. So they were taking flights away from JFK. Yeah, so th- I mean, so again, now we're if we're looking at this in terms of battles. We now have three airports kind of like battling out for for the skies and for customers. In fact, by the 1980s, both JFK and LaGuardia were seen as wildly overcrowded, and international carriers, of which there were more and more of them by this time, began seeking out Newark as a reasonable alternative because it had been like overlooked for so long. Oh. A big moment came when a now forgotten low fare airline named People Express, um, they moved into Newark in 1981 when it was, you know, people were overlooking it. Uh, They would eventually merge with Continental Airlines, who would merge with United in 2012. And so that is why- Which is based in the area out of Newark. Yeah, that's that's why United has a hub there. And by hub, you mean it's also a a transfer point. Yes. Um, And this really kept Newark in the game. Now, Tom, do you remember in the 90s, do you remember when they opened the monorail in Newark? you mean the air train? Yes. It opened in 1996. It was huge. uh, It was a seismic shift for travelers because it connected the terminals and eventually to Amtrak. And New Jersey Transit. Now you could go to Penn Station, get on a New Jersey Transit train, and transfer at the airport and hop on a monorail. And it usually worked. (laughs) And so this least used airport from 1970 was now the hottest airport. And its official name was 
Newark Liberty International Airport. Yeah, that name was changed in 2002 following the attacks on September 11th, 2001. I should mention that United Airlines Flight 93, which crashed in Pennsylvania on that day, was a flight that was leaving Newark. But this does bring up another challenge to these old airports who now have to expand and modify in recent years due to security and to new customs procedures. And then meanwhile, over at LaGuardia, you have, you know, really no good way to to expand the airport unless you go straight out into the water. And those landing strips are sinking into the land. I mean, I would say, wouldn't you say that the 1980s is when LaGuardia really got its negative reputation as being overbooked, known Throughout the world for delayed flights, it was overcrowded. It was also one of the ugliest airports. There was a gigantic parking garage that was built in 1976, like right in the middle of the whole thing. Um, And new terminals that were built in the 1980s and 90s were hardly improving on this place's reputation. Although that old marine terminal building still stands in all of its Art Deco glory. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's true. um, an exception to the rule. There's also this problem with access. Now, if if you live in New York, you may understand this. Now, it was pause for hysterical (laughs) laughter. Now, you know, it was a it's a very automobile friendly airport. So, which was great in the mid 20th century, but less so today. And now, with JFK and Newark having direct rail connections for mass transit, it makes LaGuardia an even less desirable choice. I mean, some of my most depressing moments as a human being were standing in a LaGuardia terminal, getting off of a flight, trying to figure out how I'm getting home. Like you could like get off a plane and still be at the airport like two hours later, just trying to figure out how you're like getting a car and getting out of there on the holidays. Yeah, those are some grim times. Although there are a a few public transportation options, but there's nothing as simple as hopping on a monorail and and then a subway or a <laughs> yeah. train like you can at JFK or Newark. But Tom, the future is looking bright here at LaGuardia. Oh. Um, there is an $8 billion plan to modernize LaGuardia that's in the works that will have 72 new gates, six new concourses, and uh, two brand new arrival and departure halls, 2.7 million square feet of new space. This will also include a rail service that will connect LaGuardia to Midtown Manhattan, Wow, that sounds great. When does this new vision of the future open? Oh, Tom, some of it has already opened. Just this past weekend, 18 new gates have opened out in LaGuardia. It's happening, Tom. And there's also different kinds of like new trendy concessions. There's a Shake Shack out there, Tom. I mean, you would not have like paired convenience and fun things with LaGuardia. But many of these changes have already been made and many more to come in the next couple years. And, and, and that rail service? Well, I mean, that, it's budgeted. Ah. I'll believe that rail service when I, I am in there with my roller bags and the doors have closed behind me. Well, regardless, it's an exciting time at LaGuardia. Um, and congratulations on their new improvements. For images of the past and present at Newark and LaGuardia airports, Visit our blog, BarryBoysHistory.com. A huge holiday thanks to our patrons who have joined us on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bowery Boys. 
with our small monthly contributions. Uh, it's because of you that Greg and I can work on the Bowery Boys full time. Thank you so much. Head to Patreon to see the fun little rewards that are in store for you, including um, member-only access to our special patron audio feed. Finally, we have a live show on January 11th. That's a Friday at 7 p.m. at the Bell House. And you'll want to be there. It'll be our first real live podcast recording. I mean, we've we've released live events before, but this is actually going to be an episode. It's going to be an episode about Walt Whitman. It's called Whitmania. Celebrating Walt Whit yeah. Celebrating Walt Whitman's New York and Brooklyn. And so we're going to be telling the story of Walt Whitman, but also through some of the places that you can visit in New York. We're going to have guests. We're going to have readings. It literally is going to be a Whitmania. And we hope that you will join us there. This is part of the Brooklyn Podcast Festival. It's being held at the Bell House. Again, that's Friday, January 11th. For tickets, head to cityfarmpresents.com or check out our blog, boweryboyshistory.com. We hope to see you there. And finally, there are some Bowery Boys walking tours afoot this holiday season as well as into January. That's right. We have walking tours at boweryboyswalks.com that include a special Christmas in Old New York walking tour. There's a Ladies Mile cast iron architecture walking tour, a Murder and Mayhem in NoHo walking tour, and of course, a Legends and Landmarks of Broadway walking tour. Furthermore, you can check out BoweryBoysWalks.com to give the gift of a walking tour, a, uh, a perfect stocking stuffer this holiday season, a Bowery Boys Walks gift certificate for that special somebody. We have already dates in, well into 2019 for you to check out as well. You can just slide on your stockings and go on the walking tour. <laughs> Thick stockings <laughs> if it's this winter. Yeah. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us on this Tale of the Skies. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Introducing Celebration Key, your key to paradise. Unlock Carnival's all-new exclusive destination at Grand Bahama, where you can dive into clear lagoons, try all the water sports, or unwind on a mile-long, pristine beach with breathtaking sunset views. This vacation paradise has it all. Celebration Key, welcoming guests in summer 2025. Carnival, choose fun. Copyright 2024, Carnival Corporation. All rights reserved. Ships Registry, the Bahamas and Panama.